spoken to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Lord, God, you may be seated. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly this morning. What are mortals that you are mindful of them is the question that the um, psalmist asked this morning in Psalm 8. What are human beings that you, God, are mindful of them? Seems an appropriate question to ask on Trinity Sunday. And so as we've moved through the, um, the higher seasons of the church year that sort of begin in Advent and and for lack of a better term, end today. Um, that'll end, we move into a next season. But, but we've sort of been living through the story and that we await, um, that we celebrate, that we walk that path of mourning, that we celebrate again, and spirit comes to us. And then we sort of take this pause to reflect on this fact that God has been revealed to us as three in one and one in three. This, uh, this is a classic way of conceiving of it that has the benefit of, of leading to less heresy. <laughs> um, uh, this is tricky, the Trinity Sunday, because there's so many temptations and pitfalls to fall in if you say certain things wrong. But, but in, in Latin, this is God in the center, deus. Um, and then uh, EST is, God is, uh, potter, um, uh, Father, Spirit Sanctus, Holy Spirit, uh, Phileas, Son. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And then the, the thing connecting them on the outside is the Spirit is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit. And this is this delicate balance we have as we sort of enter into Trinity Sunday, as we begin to sort of hold and ponder what this revelation is. I, that's why I think that Psalm 8 question is still so important, is what are we human beings that you are mindful of us? What are we mortals that we have revealed sort of this inner divine working that, that at times seems to stretch our brains, and at times seems to break them? Um, which again is, is not the point of, of sort of this mystery that is Trinity. Um, uh, that's, it's, it's, it's meant to inspire awe and witness and, and, and mystery within ourselves, but not mystery in the sense of, hey, I was reading Agatha Christie. It's a great mystery novel, and I wonder who did it. Um, don't worry, they'll always tell you in those kind of novels. Um, but more mystery in the sense of an open space for us to move into pondering and being renewed. 
It's not just a mystery we seek an explanation from, but one in which we can inhabit and, and I think rightfully can bring us to praise. Now, um, this is uh, C.S. Lewis who we will start and end with this Sunday. Um, in the latter half of Mere Christianity, which uh, people fall off on for weird reasons, but everyone has warned me not to tell you what I'm going to tell you this in my last book, which is on the Trinity. They all say the ordinary reader does not want theology. Give him plain practical religion. Evidence of being here. Uh, You know, I I resist the the give them plain practical religion as best as I can. I have rejected their advice. Me too. I do not think the ordinary reader is such a fool. This is the heart of it. Theology means the science of God, and I think any man who wants to think about God at all would like to have the clearest and most accurate ideas about him which are available. You are not children. Why should you be treated like children? I think of this every year when we come into Trinity Sunday as it's complex, it's hard, how do I um, dumb it down, make it practical, move it into these other spaces, and then I remember you are not children. I am not a child. That we can begin to think in deeper and and more sophisticated ways about God. Now, as I look around the room, um, you know, Brian, you were a, uh, you have a PhD in, or a master's in engineering. engineering. Park can put glass into any window you want, um, which I could never do. Um, uh, uh, Shelly is a vice principal of bad kids, uh, good kids, and... um, (laughs) Uh, like, so many people in the modern world, Brian built a deck, that's not his job, but, but the way in which he built it was, was quite beautiful to see. Merle, who's not here today, he had this, and uh, Jared, they, they were able to, I mean, I was amazed by this, maybe this seems obvious to you, but they were able to measure, like, as we had put down th- three quarters of it, Jeremy was there and be like, oh, we need to tell each of the next three a quarter of an inch to make up for the gap that's going to be there at the end. And I was like, yeah, I saw that too. (laughs) I think, I mean, a little bit more than a quarter, guys. Um, But they were able to measure that the the people who inhabit any church, and in this church, you're not children. You do sophisticated, hard things in your daily lives and work and jobs. Uh, Jeremy teaches Ralph Ellison, the invisible man, to high schoolers. That's a phrase we're thinking about there. Teaching the Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison to high schoolers sounds like, no thanks. Um, And so oftentimes the church is tempted to say this should be the easiest and simplest and least thoughtful place of your ordinary lives. And yet I think each of us um, longs for longer and deeper and more when we want to ponder the divine. And we would like what he says here is the, the clearest and most accurate, accurate ideas that are available to us. C.S. Lewis goes on in this, in this next section, but it's fascinating. He says that he, he ran into a guy at a, going back a sec, I think C.S. Lewis says apologetics tend to fail in the modern world because they assume a world we don't have, inhabit anymore. But his devotional stuff, I think speaks because he could see the next world that was coming because he's making it plain to people who are on the outside in a different way. So we're sticking with his devotional stuff. But in the next section, he says, you know, I was speaking to an Air Force captain who told me that um, 
he, when he had uh, wrecked out of his plane and was stranded in the desert for a short period of time, that he had an experience with the divine that was so far beyond anything that he didn't need any of what I was going to share with him. And what Lewis says to him is, is that's probably true that he had an experience like that. But if, if you looked at the Atlantic Ocean on a map um, and then walked to the edge of it, that disconnect would be there. You know, the Atlantic Ocean is much more powerful in person than it is on the map. And he says, Lewis, that theology is kind of like a map, but the problem that the Air Force captain and anybody else would agree with is that if you want to go somewhere with that experience you had or that embrace of the divine, you're going to need the map. You're going to need the language and the ability to sort of move through that. Um, so oftentimes we think, oh, we can experience more than this, but then how are we going to articulate it? How are we going to live into that? How are we going to go forth as those who carry this divine name? That's what um, the end of Matthew's gospel that Becca read for us suggests, is that um, uh, baptizing them, going forth, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, in the email this week, I sent out this uh, short blurb on how to avoid Trinitarian heresy, um, which is... One of the most clicked on things I've ever sent out, which is weird because it's just a collection of tweets, um, but many of you clicked on it. Now, I made a comment at the start of the email that said, you know, preachers uh, on the Sunday are, are poorly attempted to explain the Trinity, and they shouldn't do that. And I, I, I want to try and draw us more into the praise. Um, our service exists in the praise of the Trinity. Th this Sunday, we began with all creatures of our God and King, in which we praise the triune life. And we end in the doxology every Sunday, which is a praise to the Trinity. That The Trinity is not an abstract thing we force into our church service. But this is Trinity Sunday, and what's number one on the list? Start by abolishing Trin Trinity Sunday, that fateful day on which preachers think they have to explain the Trinity. Um, so... Not doing well so far. Um, um, but I think what he means is, is that we exist in a lot of places where this is the one day we'll take in pondering the Trinity and that's it. Rather than seeing it as this place in which we go forth, it's the mission in the name in which we are going forth baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That, that Paul, when he talks about our prayer life, he considers it in Trinitarian form. That if you look at the nature of, of sort of the church calendar and the, and the way in which revelation happens, it seems to proceed in a Trinitarian form, although with hints otherwise. Uh, you find in Genesis 1 that, that they say, among themselves, let us make man in our image. Um, for the Jew, uh, that becomes the heavenly council um, that's, that's conversing with uh, the Lord. Um, but for the Christian, um, it, it's probably not an error to see something of the triune voice hinted there. You see the Spirit of the Lord active often in the Old Testament. The Eastern Orthodox have this way of, of, of reading Christ into such figures as um, uh, the man in the fire, the fourth one in the fire in the book of Daniel, where they're thrown in there, and three are in there, but they say they see a fourth one. Or Melchizedek, this one, who is the king of peace in the book of Genesis. Um, he comes down from Salem, the city of peace, and he meets with Abraham, and they have bread and wine. Uh, the Orthodox see in there sort of an early vision of of Jesus coming to us too as the king of peace 
whom shares communion with us in bread and wine. Now, I think we can um, lean too hard into those are obviously signs of the pre-incarnate or early incarnate or, or something else, Christ, but these hints fall through us in the narrative structure of the Bible. And yet we have teachings like the one which Christ commands us to. Uh, the second highest teaching is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, for our God is one. That, that we have this oneness that's there too. And so we have this character that is both three and one and how they relate and revealed to us. The second one, which I think is important and that we've been slowly trying to embrace here, is, is teach children to make the sign of the cross when they say the words Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This one, I think, and this is um, Ben Myers is a Protestant thinker, a uh, Reformed Protestant thinker at that. Um, but I think what he's naming here is that if we're going to ponder the Trinity, perhaps it's worth pondering in the way in which we are marked with it, that we carry it forth with us. It's just something that we just read about in textbooks. Certainly makes it the air that C.S. Lewis says, you know, let's just keep this away and esoteric rather than bring it near to ourselves. I just want to pick out a couple more. Um, this one I use as a preacher often. Have you come up with a really helpful analogy for the Trinity? Well done. Now please don't tell anyone about it ever. Um, first off, me. But second off, everybody else. Um, and I've, this is odd because they never warn you about this in seminary, but occasionally you'll meet with people, and they're normally new to the church or not in a church, and they're like, hey, I've got a great way to explain the Trinity to people. And I normally say, well done. Now don't tell anyone about it ever, which normally causes them to laugh, and they say, well, here's what it is. Um, like, ah, uh, uh, this needs to be more direct. Uh, but part of the reason for that is, is that, you know, you've heard the ice one, you've heard um, a man can be both a father, uh, his name, and um, a, co a co-worker. So uh, uh, as a dad, I can be dad, Matt, and pastor, right? Is that we, these all end up sort of blurring the lines, or ice is both, um, uh, can exist as a gas, as a solid, and as a liquid, and that's how we explain the Trinity. Um, St. Augustine is, is great about this because he, he talks in his book on the Trinity, he says, all of these are worthless, and then he gives you 400 pages of them, um, which is probably the right way to handle it, to say that all of these reach their own limits. Some of them worse than others and probably tilt to, to heresy in ways we wouldn't, but, but at the end of the day, they all are feeble in some ways. Um, I'm trying to think. Number 14, um, this is one I think is important for us to keep in mind. The ancients who developed the doctrine of the Trinity, as many of us are aware, Trinity is not an exact word that appears in the Bible. Trinity Sunday, uh, I think somebody comically note, I at least laugh, said it's the only Sunday we celebrate a doctrine. Um, no other doctrine gets its own Sunday. Um, but, but the ancients who came up with it, they said it's a key to Scripture which in turn can shape our practice. They looked at it as a way of understanding that mystery of that there is this sort of monotheistic one God that is now known in three ways, and that can then shape how we live. Whereas moderns, and this is our temptation, is to say, ah, the Trinity is how we practice, even though it's not scriptural, um, which is not accurate at all, but that's the way that modern people tend to say look at the Trinity, particularly Bible scholars and theologians, they'll get over on the not scriptural element of it. This is a moment of confession for me. When I was 
younger and dumber and not that young. I had just finished college and I was working for a church plant, which they probably should have fired this for me, fired me for this, is I wrote a blog post, as you shouldn't do, um, about the Trinity and I referenced, this is confession, so don't, don't think this is good. Um, I wrote a blog post saying that if, that, that if you ask for ascent in the Trinity and you can't point out any way in which ascent in the Trinity means something for somebody's life, perhaps you should shop, stop asking for people to believe in the Trinity. Um, I repent in sackcloth and ashes. I've done it many times on Trinity Sundays on how air that was. Not every doctrine needs to be, and this is then how I live from it. Because if you think about it, how do I know and understand God can't help but have an impact on your life. But to say if, if the way in which we understand God isn't able to be connected one-to-one to something else doesn't change the fact that it's the definition of the one whom we worship and praise. Um, probably, probably should have gotten fired for that one, um, but I had other problems. Um, he includes this line from Bart at the end, which I think is, is very important. What, what can all our Christian statements be but a seriously pointing away to, to, to the one who will himself tell those who have ears to hear who he is? What are our statements other than a pointing away to the one who will he himself tell those who have ears to hear who he is? That these doctrine statements about the Trinity are, are those in which are those map in which we can hear who God is, how God might be for us, how God might relate to us, how God might come into this space, how we might properly worship and experience God in our lives. So uh, each week is animated by these concerns in these places and in this life. We recently finished a sermon series on what I called the unholy trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil, that which distorts us, that which pulls us away from God. And so then we have this other true trinity, this one in which we are found in praise, and we don't relate them one-to-one, by the way. There is no analogy here between them, but that is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But one of the things that I find that question in Psalm 8, what are mortals that you are mindful of them, invites us into this way of asking that question, what is it that is important that God thinks of us? Why is God mindful of this portion of his creation? It's a little bit lower than the angels. What is that? And one of the ways that it defines church in which we try to understand ourselves in that way is through the, what's called the three um, uh, cardinal theological virtues, which are faith, hope, and love. Now, each year I've tried in the past to express this in a way in which we understand ourselves. I'll do so briefly now, but, but faith is our response to God. It has a little bit of this past action to it. Faith emerges out of our past scene of God active in the world, God active in our lives, God active and good for us. And, and the way that we understand this Trinitarian is to say that by, because God created, we respond in faith to God. And created is often considered the realm of the Father. Now, proper Trinitarian language, when I read the book on this, or several books on this, they always make to note that say, creation by the Father 
through the Son, by the power of the Spirit. So you never just say there's only one actor. So the Father creates through the Son, which we get in John 1, by the power of the Spirit. You see that uh, another hint of that in Genesis 1, that the Spirit is hovering over the waters. There's the voice of God that speaks to create and the God who's looking over that chaos too. And so that faith comes out of that place. This is how we respond to God. Hope becomes then our future place. Now this is the Spirit, as we talked about Pentecost, is often, often in its fullness when we are full of the Spirit, giving us glimpses of the fullness of when God comes. Hope is then our future-oriented look towards, the, towards what God will establish here. So here we would say that, that, that God is bringing us to consummation, to the fullness of time, by the Spirit, through the power of the Son, um, to the will of the Father. So it's always Trinitarian, right? You, you, you emphasize the Spirit, perhaps, with hope, that it's always setting hope within us and allowing us, when we are full of it, to see the hopeful world in which God is creating. Um, but it's never just one. So the final one becomes um, love, which we talk about how it governs us in the present. And love is this way in which we... Um, uh, see in the way in which Christ acts among us. There's, there's a vocab words for each of these. Faith is to hope. Um, the spirit we talked about last week is a word I love, is circumambiently with us. The sun is among. The sun, the sun acts among us in that way. The sun is among us, and what we see in that practice is what drives us in the present, which is love. Um, and so uh, the sun... Ma- acts among humanity to, to bring it to reconciliation as we are estranged um, through the Spirit resting on him in his baptism to the will of the Father who, who called him into life. Not my will, but your will be done. This is the way in which these sort of three virtues become ways in which we um, see how God is inviting us into his mindfulness of us. And I, I think that there, um, there are postures we can adapt that can help us in the world. They can help us narrate where we are. You can, you can go back to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, which is probably the proper place to begin considering these things. But then as you say, um, uh, how do we, we, we live into these things? To think in faith, hope, and love, too, as, as this realm in which we see the Trinitarian activities in the God who is mindful of us. Um, we begin to live in ways that we begin to understand ourselves, our context, and our days in ways that can then be lifted up in, in doxological. We sing the doxology at the end. So doxological is not a word I made up, um, but I don't know what part of English it is. Ray? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's a what? Adjective. Um, doxological gratitude towards God is what can emerge. Is that right, Jeremy? Jeremy's also an English teacher. See, you are not children, um, uh, but but able to handle advanced things far beyond me. That's for sure. Grammar. Grammar. Well, yeah. Um, my mother's visiting this Sunday. She can talk about the limits of Matt's understanding on grammar, spelling, and all that goes along with it. Um, did better at math, I felt like. 
Um, anyways, enough about me. Um, we then have these ways in which we can understand ourselves in that way. Um, I want to jump to one other thing before we sort of dive into the two other scriptures. We've talked about Psalm 8 quite a bit. Um, this is from an essay by Robert Jensen. It's a quote on the back of the bulletin. So if that's too small to read, you can look at the back of the bulletin. Um, in this essay, which I can put in the email this week, Jensen's talking about how the world lost its story. The, that's the nation. The, the title of the essay is How the World Lost Its Story. And Jensen suggests that what happens is we used to live in a narratable universe where things made sense, books had points. If there was a murder in the Agatha Christie book, by the end of it, you knew who had done it. Nowadays, um, if you read contemporary fiction, a lot of it ends with no obvious answer or conclusion. This, this starts, if you, if you really want to nerd out, with Ray and Kim and Jeremy, um, with uh, Ulysses and James Joyce. He's one of the people who sort of sets up this sort of narrative book that doesn't have its same coherence beginning, middle, and end, the same way that people have understood themselves forever. And so Jensen, in this essay, is trying to tackle what does it mean that we live in a less narratable universe than we did before, where things don't have to lead to logical things and make sense and be wrapped up in some ways, because part of that is essential to understanding the Christian story. What's gone wrong if we use that? And so Christianity, he says, and he has, he has a book called Story and Promise that he says was, was an error because he assumed that that world was the world he was spoken to. And so this article is sort of a correction on that. Um, but we lived in a closed sort of storied world before. And so as in his article, he's, he's suggesting ways in which the church might make um, correction to the errors he's made in the past, um, the errors in which that. One of the things that he says is that the church, in all its forms, needs to reclaim the Eucharistic celebration as the place where story and narrative is most coherent. It's one of the reasons why at Defiance Church, at the center of our service, is the communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharistic celebration, is because it's there that we re-enchant the world and we can then begin to understand more. He poses a second challenge to that, which I think is interesting, uh, that I haven't considered, if you have thoughts on it, you can let me know afterwards, but, but that we live, um, we act like the real world is out there, and you come in here to get information to go back out into the real world. He thinks Christians might want to claim worship again as the most real of the real worlds, because it's the world in which we are going towards the world of that vision in which we will have that. Um, these are all side points. But then he gets into um, one of his points on story is that Christianity has used slogan as substitute for story. Jesus Christ saves. Basically, anything that would sit fit on a Christian bumper sticker would qualify as using story or slogans as a way to substitute for story. And he sees slogans as one of the great heirs because they don't call us into the story of the word in which God has related to us that we need to be called back into that narrable universe so slogans always fail. But then on Trinity Sunday, of course, this is my using it today, he reminds us there is one slogan-like phrase that is precisely a maximally compressed version of the one God's particular story. This is the revealed name. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
It is thus no accident at all that in our postmodern situation, the struggle between realistic faith, faith and religious wool gathering settles into a struggle over this name. The triune name evokes God as the three actors of his one story and places the three in their actual narrative relation. Substitutes do not and cannot do this. And this is, this is a fight that still happens in the Christian world that he's referring to. Substitutes do not and cannot do this. Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier, for example, neither narrates nor specifically names for creating, redeeming, and sanctifying are timeless aspects of the biblical God's activity and are more, however, things that all punitive gods somehow do. If you say, I don't prefer Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but I prefer Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier, his question is, how is that different than what almost every other god promises or does? Um, in the postmodern situation, we will easily recognize congregation and agencies that know what, the, what world they inhabit by their love and fidelity to the triune name. And we will recognize antiquated, antiquated Protestantism, Protestantism by uneasiness with the triune name. What we have in that one slogan, which I've never really seen on a bumper sticker, is the condensement of the story and the relations that God has to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. And particularly Father, we get shyness about. That's one of the reasons why we sang uh, Good, Good Father this morning, is because it calls us into knowing that that is part of the triune name. Um, there are multiple reasons on why people try to relieve the triune name from Father, um, and it happens uh, happened with a couple who was here uh, not long ago. But, but what happens is, is then you unhinge it from the revealed name of God, the revealed name in which the one we're told in Romans, that we cry out to the Father. Now going back to that tweet thread, there was this interesting point that, that the ancients, when they said Father, they said it's very clearly an analogical way in which all fathers are just, fatherhood originates with the Father. All other fathers, in their fracturedness and their fraughtness, are just fractured images of the true father. Because we live in a psychological age, we project upwards. My father is then like the godly father. And the ancients were like, no, no, it works the other way down. True fatherhood doesn't reside in something near to you, but it resides in God. Anything that comes down from that will be fractured as it is. You should expect that along the way. And God then, to be clear, is not male either. Uh, to call God Father is not to call him a man, but to call him the revealed name, which is Father. But part of reclaiming this Sunday and reclaiming it as a worship is, I think Jensen is right, to avoid the antiquated versions of Protestantism that have unease with the triune name to reclaim that in this space. And it's a slogan by which we might actually be able to use and narrate into our world. Um, I know that's a bit of a side, but uh, um, I thought, it, I always think it's important. There are things that come up and I skip them every three years. And so it was this year I got to use that quote. So um, this is the Romans reading. We did Psalm 8. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh the living according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the myth deeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. 
the spirit who received you does not make you slaves. And I, I was, as um, Brian was reading that, will not make you slaves. I was thinking about the world, the flesh, and the devil again, and how the world, the flesh, and the devil really want to make us slaves again. But this spirit you receive will not make you slaves um, so that you will live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption, your chosenness to sonship. And by him, and this is where it gets um, Trinitarian, we had the spirit, and by him we cry out, Abba, Father. We cry out to the Father. The spirit, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs in deeds and heirs of God and co-heirs in Christ. If we indeed share in his sufferings, in order we may also share in his glory. The Apostle Paul in this, uh, you know, people are like, the Trinity word isn't in the Bible, but certainly here, the Trinity is in the Bible. You have the Spirit which adopts us into the posture of sonship where we enact in Christ's spot his prayer to the Father. And that's where we know we are God's children through that adoption through the Spirit. Paul goes on in Romans, um, and he's, he's, he's comparing the ways in which we're caught in this age. But one of my favorite parts is also in chapter 8, where he says that the Spirit intercedes with us with wordless groans. The Spirit intercedes in our prayers that are these wordless groans towards God. Um, and it searches our heart, um, and he who searches our heart knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Um, when, when bad things happen in the world, both particularly and locally, I was at the hospital, and a person who wasn't a Christian was talking to me about something bad that had recently happened, and um, uh, they were like, well, I guess it's uh, thoughts and prayers for you people. And I was like, N sometimes. But it's also that we have wordless groans and the frustration that creation exists in, that the Spirit intercedes for us and makes sense of. Christians are those who in the midst of, of, of darkness can say that we don't offer an explanation. Christianity, I think it was Stanley Harawas who said, is, is the training to live without explanation. And so while the world may say, how do we make sense of this? How many words can we pour out over what happened? The Christian says, how can I sit in a wordless spot so that the Spirit can intercede for me? The Spirit that causes us to call Abba Father because we are God's children. The Spirit makes sense of that. I think it's, it's important to remember that, that, that we don't, aren't the answer people, although we may feel tempted to be the answer people. Um, that's the Romans reading um, for us this morning. And then the, the Matthew reading, which I've alluded to several times. Um, uh, I want to get it up there just so we can all see it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. Classic passage from the end of the book of Matthew. Uh, one of the things that we often forget is that here Jesus is about to ascend to heaven, and in the book of Matthew it says, and some doubted. Um, Christians 
are people who have natively absorbed adult, uh, a doubt into their sacred scripture at the highest moment. Here I go to ascend to the heaven where all authority has been given to me, and some among that place doubted. Um, we can overemphasize doubt and sort of make it interesting, which I don't think is the point of that passage, but just to say the people gathered there had doubt amongst them. But we, we know this one, the, the son, as he goes in this way, goes to the place of all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And each time I sit with this passage slower, the more I've seen the hyperactivity out of it seems to be, to me, skipping over elements of it. As we go out to share the gospel and to make disciples, are we trusting and knowing as we go as with the one who all authority in heaven on earth has been given to? Do our wins and results from those days and those times actually matter? Or are we going as those who have already know the one whom all authority rests in heaven and on earth? I like the one, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, um, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded to you. Um, so often when I found myself drawn into those places, we skipped over teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you merely just trying to get them to confess a formula. This goes back to Jensen's point. Um, formulas might be betraying us there, right? We, we want you to confess a formula rather than to become a disciple of Jesus, to become one who lives and knows and acts in the world the way he does. And the, the baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it is the name in which we are invited into, it is the name in which resides of our body. This is the name in which God has called us to. We are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the last one, which I think we could live into and believe into even more, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Christ, through the Spirit, by the will of the Father, is the one who is with us till the end of the age. So, ending, I said we'd end with C.S. Lewis. Um, you may ask if we cannot imagine a three-person being, this is, he's been talking about the three-person being, what good is there anything talking about him? Well, there isn't anything good about talking to him. The thing that matters is actually being drawn into the three-personal life that may begin at any time tonight if you'd like. What I mean is this, an ordinary simple Christian kneels down to say his prayers. He is trying to get in touch with God, but if he is a Christian, he knows what is prompting him to pray is also God, God, so to speak, inside of him. But he also knows that all his real knowledge of God comes through Christ, the man who was God, that Christ is standing beside him, helping him to pray, praying for him. You see what is happening? God is the thing into which he is praying, the goal in which he is trying to reach. God is also the thing which is inside him, which is pushing him on, the mode of the power. God is also the road or the bridge on which he is being pushed to that goal. So that the whole threefold life of the three personal being of God is actually going on in our ordinary little bedrooms where we ordinary people say our prayers. We, this man with us, is being caught up in that higher kind of spiritual life, 
what I call Zoe or spiritual life. He is being pulled into God by God while still remaining himself. I don't want to explain the Trinity. I want us to worship and praise and pray in the name of the Trinity. So let us close in prayer together. Father, you sent your Son to bring us truth and your Spirit to make us holy. Through them we come to know the mystery of your life. Help us to worship you, one God in three persons, by proclaiming in our living our faith in you. Grant this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.